Hello, everyone. Welcome to our episode 44 in the series of podcasts that we call That's So Second Millennium. I'm Bill Schmidt, and uh, my uh, colleague is uh, Dr. Paul Giesting, and we continue our exploration uh, most broadly about uh, the interconnections between uh, science and religion and uh, the philosophy of both. Uh, but uh, we've been delving more deeply now into how those interconnections relate to psychology and to uh, the human mind and human consciousness. And Paul helped us out with the mapping of brain functions in our last episode. And we concluded that there's a lot more to discuss about the mapping and how it's interconnected with everything from uh, the emotions we feel to the uh, free will that we exercise, etc. Paul, uh, good to have you back. So, Paul, please uh, continue with uh, that discussion of the uh, mapping and uh, the different functions, and we can go really into more about the function and the meaning of the function. Yeah, um, there was some. I, I wanted to continue the discussion just just to go to touch on some special topics uh, for a little bit. Uh, so, I, among those, I would like to well, among those, we're, we're, we don't we're kind of constrained on a recording time right now. So, uh, probably just try to touch on PTSD, trauma, um, how the brain deals with stress and fear. Um, mm. Some uh, some discussion, a little bit of discussion of depression and mania, sort of the, the converse of depression. Mm. A little bit about ADHD, potentially. Very good. Maybe a little bit about autism. That's, that's actually kind of mm. fascinating, the take that was uh, in uh, Rita Carter's Mapping the Mind. Mm-hmm. It was just beginning to be a big question. And then at the end, of course, we'd like to touch a little bit on uh, some philosophical questions about you know brain damage versus free will versus consciousness, um, some some of the sort of philosophic garbage that, <laughs> or <laughs> sort of a, a vacuum of philosophy, <laughs> a sort of lack of thinking uh -huh. about it, um, that, that gets discussed when you're when you're dealing with people who are who are just so impressed by the fact that, you know, we can track thoughts across the brain that there must be nothing else for us to do other than track chemical reactions across the brain. And that must be consciousness. Ah, right. So, but yeah, now the story has to go beyond that. That's right. Yeah, it sure does. It sure does. So let's talk a little bit about. Um, so again, the the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk. Very good book. Um, I'd recommend that to anyone with the slightest interest in learning more about PTSD, or for that matter, about child abuse, um, mm. and about you know sort of societal the the societal effects of parenting. Um, all of those are really really. Uh, important issues that get touched on in that book um, that it's it's a and it's just a fast I mean it's really literally just a fascinating book over and above the fact that it talks about really important things anyway yes so so there's this interplay between our emotional and our conscious brain um, that to the point where if you have a strong enough emotion you can almost get your conscious brain can also almost be wiped out now bill I've done experiments on myself to prove this yeah so back in college I went to college in 1997, and as you may or may not remember, uh, the the swing dance craze was going on back then. The, yeah. the swing dance revival. 
Um, and I really, I have always wanted to learn how to, you know, sort of ballroom dance or, you know, a dance with a step of some kind, some kind of structure to it. I've always wanted, to, like, that. that's just always appealed to me. But the problem is, is that I also uh, have a lot of, and certainly back then, had a lot of sort of social phobia. And uh, it, was, it was really hard to attempt to learn anything when I am, so for a, a, an example that stands out very well in my memory. So there was a friend of ours, you know, a member of the sort of larger group of friends. Her name was Jane. Um, mm -hmm. but I talked to a few times and we went out dancing once and she's like, she's like six feet tall. She's also from uh -huh. the East coast. She's a Jewish girl from the East coast. Really beautiful. Um, so I'm out yeah. there dancing and I am so nervous. First of all, because I can't hear what she's talking about. I can't make between the music and the noise of the club and her accent. I am just terrified that I can't hear what she's even saying. <laughs> And second of all, I'm, you know, attempting to dance and I don't know what I'm doing um, and I'm afraid of embarrassing myself. So my emotional limbic system was just on full red alert. My, my, if you were imaging my amygdala at that point, I'm sure they would have just been cherry red, glowing, probably steam coming off of them. I did not learn much about swing dancing in that environment. <laughs> my higher brain functions were not not coping very well with that uh, with that situation. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I might be expecting a lot for higher brain functions to be at their peak when one is uh, uh, dancing on a date. Uh, that, uh, but in any event, uh, it's fascinating. Uh, go on with this story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I mean, I'm personally very have become very very interested in the issue of PTSD recently because. So I, ha I've, I have a life experience. Um, fortunately, it's one that's you know, relatively easy to talk about. In fact, I've told people about it for years without even stopping to think, what, is, what has that done? What, what has that really done uh, mm -hmm. to Paul? But uh, when I was five, I don't know, have I mentioned this on the podcast before? I don't think so. Okay. When I, so when I was five, um, I was here on the farm. I actually at the moment still live here, have come back and, and live here for now. Um, so I was five. My brother had not quite turned three. He was probably a month or so shy of turning three. So we were out one day, and um, my brother got his leg caught in a piece of farm machinery, and it actually mm. got severed. It got uh, wound up, ripped off, and um, and I was about I was not in line of sight, but I was about thirty feet away, I think. And. So I, this, I, you know, as a story, it's, you know, it's something I knew had happened to me. Um, and my memory of that day, it's like the, the, the several minutes or so leading up to that, maybe 10 or 15 mm -hmm. minutes leading up to that, I remember reasonably, I mean, for, for my being five, I remember it very, very well. I don't remember anything else this vividly from that age. Um, right. And then my memory just stops. It just goes blank at the moment when I see my father drop a bucket and go run to where my brother is. Um, yeah, so, and it, it just never occurred to me until this past summer when something that someone posted on Facebook, you know, introduced me, well, reintroduced me. I think I, I'm certainly, I had heard of the concept of dissociation before, but, you know, just the mm -hmm. sense of not really being there and, um, disconnected from reality, um, and, and, you know, a host of other things, a lot of which sounded fairly familiar. Like, that's, that sounds like mm. my entire childhood and a lot of my adulthood. I'm like, 
but she and of course she brought it up in the context of the person who posted it as someone that I knew she had discussed with me before that she's had PTSD. She hasn't discussed what it is. I'm terrified to not mm. they're terrified but probably very sad to know exactly what it would be. Um mm. and I was like, but I've never had weight. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wait. <laughs> So I brought it up with a mental health professional, and he recommended. That's actually why I read um, The Body Keeps the Score. So, oh, my. Yeah. So, so I spent a lot of the, the months since then attempting to sort of see if I could bring up the rest of that memory. And what's interesting oh, is my. that there's a point in mapping the mind that makes the point that, so not only does the emotional brain, so like my episode with trying to go, uh, trying to learn swing dancing with Jane, um, mm-hmm. Not only can the emotional brain wipe out the uh, the conscious brain, but if you're sitting there and thinking too hard, you can wipe out your consciousness of your emotional side. And because emotions and the mm-hmm. body are so closely connected, of course, you know the absent-minded professor who doesn't realize he's hungry, he's still sitting there at his equations, and it's 10 p.m. And where right. did they go? Um, if you were thinking that hard, that was probably, since these, these particular type of traumatic memories I'm trying to dredge back up, um, the body keeps the score and mapping the mind agree, they would, be, they would actually be able to be stored in the amygdala itself, which is sort of the, and of course, I'm sorry. I'd, again, dear listener, you would need to get out of your <laughs> unabridged dictionary and check whether it's amygdala or, or amygdala or what the heck it is. Uh, <laughs> We we make no we make absolutely zero guarantee of proper pronunciation on that so second millennium. That's that's uh, not, not a uh, it's a it's a one hundred percent money back guarantee. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, so that so so the fact that I'm sitting here thinking very hard trying to dredge it up is actually mapping the mind point makes the point that that's probably exactly the wrong way to go about doing it. It's probably no wonder that I haven't had a whole lot of success at doing that. You need to be potentially calm to the point where, you know, the awareness of your body and awareness of your emotions can bubble up into your consciousness, or of course, you know, a trigger, which I have certainly gone out to the exact spot of the injury and tried to trigger, <laughs> tried to bring back any, but, uh, but I, ha- I mean, I had to spend so much time there as a child in that barnyard, in that exact area that I, I suspect the triggers have been worn off of that memory a long time ago. Um, if they have, if, if if indeed it ever was that sort of memory that could be triggered that way, um, so so PTSD of course is you know one of the symptoms of it is sort of a you know the, the idea of depression and depression, um, one and one of those things that actually makes sort of complete intuitive sense. Uh, a lot of the brain actually is working a lot less. Um, at a, at a lower level, a lot of your emotional system and a lot of your sort of frontal lobe area uh, is is all operating at a lower um, level of activity in depression. One of the mm-hmm. things that's actually acting at a higher level, though, apparently, is the part of your brain. And I want to say so. So I, I, we mentioned last time that the hypothalamus is involved in memory. In fact, mm-hmm. I just uh, heard an extract from the. Uh, the hearings, the Supreme Court hearings from last year, uh, where Dr. Right, Ford right. was being interviewed about, and she actually mentioned, this is burned into my hypothalamus. Um, oh. And that, in that case, it may be, or, or it may be in her amygdala or amygdala or whatever the heck it is. Um, 
but most memories actually move out to a certain part of the cortex, sort of out to either side, I want to say, in the temporal lobe, so sort of out to either side of your eyes. And that's where, that's where a lot of sort of ordinary memory is stored. Um, so, and, and part of that area, and especially I think it's on your right brain, again, the right side of the brain being the depressed half of the brain, um, is, is an area that's involved in dredging up long-term memories. And apparently that is one of a handful of areas that are actually more active than normal in, um, in depression. Which, which was a fascinating sort of like, a, 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 again, another one of those things that, you know, when you mention that, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. So, and then, you know, the opposite of, do what? Uh, uh, it just occurs to me that uh, long-term memory is somewhat compatible with that right brain skill of um, taking the overview yeah. Things and uh, yeah, it's fascinating. The connections go on. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good point. I hadn't even thought about that. And so the go on, yeah. of that is is mania, right? And so there's there's of course the sense of a lack of meaning and the the parts of the brain that you know give us direction or that are operating when we have a sense of direction. Um, those are those are going to be under underactive in depression and people who go through uh, you know manic and depressive episodes will go will, you know the brain will swing around from the those areas in the frontal lobe that have to do with the sense of meaning and purpose and direction will swing around from being underactive to overactive right and that that's you know and of course you'll also be very very much in the present again so that, mm. that that manic sense of you know everything there's this beautiful connection that would be a right brain sort of thing everything is connected and you know a feeling of great artistic insight sometimes accompanies manic episodes I think there was a chart in mapping the mind that attempted to follow I want to say it was Schubert his composing career um, mm. that yeah. you know there were years when he spent a lot of time in in the manic state and he put out just tons and tons of music. And then those would be followed by years when it just went right in the toilet, both his mood and his output. Wow. And vice versa. They would just swing back and forth. Probably, and of course, you know, usually we think of people having manic and depressive episodes over a time scale a lot shorter than a year or two. But yeah. I guess for some people it does, in fact, follow um, cycles that long. Or at least there's a, a lengthy cycle superimposed on the shorter term cycles. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot, you know, like I mentioned, there's a lot in this book about, I mean, a fair amount in this, in this book about autism. And it made right. the delightfully politically incorrect statement. Well, actually, because it's, because it, because it uh, sounds negative for stereotypical masculinity, I suppose it would be politically correct enough. But uh, you know the idea that autism is actually sort of an overdoing of the male, the stereotypical male brain. Mm. So, <laughs> so they thought. So, what were the characteristics of autism? She has a couple of actual like um, of these sort of odd '90s sort of cut and paste cartoons. It's it's a very the 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 look and feel of mapping the mind is very very '90s. I think. Uh, 
uh-huh. as, as, I, as I went through the book, that struck me over and over and over again. <laughs> but uh, but there so there are some cartoons that you know were some sort of stereotypical ideas about what goes into autism, what what it's like to be autistic, what what's happening and what's not happening. That autism is very left-brained and you know very detail-focused, and mm-hmm. that autistic children don't like new experiences. They have they have mm-hmm. negative uh, reactions to all sorts of experiences, and they they don't really want new experiences. They want to do the things, the same things over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And that they also have a lack of sort of socialization, you know. That they, yeah. I mean, so there, there's there's this whole image: displays indifference, prefers sameness, going the familiar route. Uh, behaves in bizarre ways. Well, I mean, that's not exactly. Uh, having just dealt with my nieces, that's that's neither male nor female. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, indicates needs by using adult things. Does not make eye contact. Handles or spins objects. Joins in only if an adult insists and assists. Does not join in with other children. Talks incessantly about one topic. But there's a, a great desire for the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've. I think about my own life, like, you know, of course, I've, I've, I've often wondered if, uh, as I mentioned, I do have social phobia to a certain extent. I often wondered if there's a dab of uh, Asperger's syndrome lurking around under there. Some of that really doesn't jive with me at all. There, there's what we call the great geesting directive of never taking the same way to or from an area twice. We, we must always uh-huh. go if, if one is available. Um, but there are other things. I do remember being a child and, and reading the same books over and over again because it was just going to be too much something to, you know, th- there was there was a, some sort of emotional pain associated with sort of laboring through the front, the, the initial part of a new book until I got into it. Very strange. Right. Very strange to look back on. Um, huh. So I don't know. So I don't know. Um, That's fascinating. Yeah. But, the, but there are definitely, again, recognizable different parts of the brain that are and aren't functioning um, in autism. But, but of course that's true of everything. That, that's the whole point is that the brain remakes itself, right? Mm-hmm. So we have, we have however many neurons and actually a lot of uh, brain development is actually weeding out extra neurons. But even more important is, is the forging of particular patterns of connection between different right. neurons. Right. And that's that's how the brain continues to develop into adulthood, um, and allows us. I mean, that's how we can form memories, right? Is that we have we have different uh, neurons that create linkages between themselves, and so you know, to get a complete memory, you have to pull up, you know, neurons in widely distributed regions of the brain have to start firing. So, so just to wind up here real quick, you know, so so the the end of the of mapping the mind. Uh, talks a lot um, about, you know, sort of free will in particular. I think consciousness was maybe the chapter before. Um, and so th- there's a famous, famous scenario of someone, he had a massive head injury. I think it was a lot, it took out a lot of sort of his left frontal lobe. Um, he, he's a famous man. Uh, if I remember to, I'll dredge up his name for the book. And uh, so he's, he's a 19th century. Somehow in the 19th century, he managed to survive this, having a railroad spike driven into his skull. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, it drastically changed his personality. Up to that point, he had been very industrious and very, you know, delayed gratification. 
he had a plan. You know, he was he was doing a typical 19th century climbing the sort of railroad corporate ladder. Um, and after mm -hmm. that, he just couldn't keep it together. He just could not delay gratification. He could not. He was he became violent. He he you know he'd get a negative emotion and he'd start slugging someone. Um, and he couldn't mm -hmm. and he could develop a plan and follow it through. He would he would develop tons of plans and then never follow any of them through. And and of course. The perspective that Rita Carter takes and many people take is that, well, you know, since we've identified the parts of the brain that are involved in, you know, if, since we can cut out this or that, you know, really there's no such thing as free will and there's, there's really not much in the way of human responsibility for anything. It's just your brain. And mm -hmm. that's, of course, sort of, but that's, that, that there, there's an enormous gap in logic there between you know, the idea that, yes, I mean, because after all, if there's anything, as, you know, we talked last year about uh, Arthur Compton's book, you know, The Freedom of Man, you know, there's just, quantum physics leaves all the room in the world for, you know, this, this activity in the brain, these chemical reactions, you know, a lot of them have to start somewhere from a quantum fluctuation and then they cascade up to the point that they can affect whole neurons, and then individual neurons start affecting, you know, large families of neurons across the brain, and we do something, or we remember something, or we feel something. And the mere fact that the part of the brain where that could happen is, has been grossly removed by accident or injury or malice um, doesn't, in no way means that an ordinary human being doesn't have free will. The fact that we can physically, apparently we can physically remove it if we're that unlucky or we're that malicious, I mean, that's just not, <laughs> not at all the same thing as saying that we don't have free will or that, or for that matter, I mean, then there's a little question of consciousness and the question of maybe my iPhone has, your iPhone doesn't have feelings. <laughs> right. I just have no... There's no reason to believe that because we can, we can create something to imitate human behavior, doesn't mean. I mean, yeah, that's, it's. I mean, it's 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 just a question of sweeping something under the rug. If someone can come up with a materialist explanation of consciousness, I am all ears. Tell me, I want to know if there's a way of doing it. But I've never even seen the attempt. I can't. I I don't. There's nothing I've ever read that would even constitute an attempt at an explanation of consciousness. It's just the assertion that this is all that's going on. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, I've heard that consciousness, consciousness is, is a deep mystery, mystery still in the field of psychology. Yeah, I mean, now, now to feed it back the other direction, what do we gain by studying the brain? I think we gain a ton about studying the brain and learning about consciousness because you know, so so if you were, say, Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas or Descartes, um, and you're just trying to study your own consciousness just by thinking about it, as opposed to looking at scans of the brain and saying, when you, when you remember a circus, <laughs> these seven mm -hmm. parts of the brain lit up in this order. There's a lot mm -hmm. of structure there in terms of, mm -hmm. and this, you know, this part, you know, is in common with all these other processes, and therefore this sort of process is probably going on. I mean, we gain a lot in that scenario um, in terms of, you know, bringing it back to a sort of philosophy of thought 
Um, I mean, you can, I mean, it makes psychology into an actual science. It gives us some structure to work with. Um, right. But it, at the same time, it doesn't remove, you know, the idea that, you know, that we're human, essentially. And that our, our insight into ourselves, that we have insight into ourselves, and that we are conscious. Um, right. It just, it, I mean, it's just an, a great assistance into, I mean, it, it's, yeah, I mean, it's like learning that, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's like learning how your car works so that you're no longer helpless along the side of the road. Why won't the thing start? Well, mm -hmm. because I know that this is connected to this and this is connected to that, um, that gives me a, you know, it gives me a, uh, <laughs> a network of things to try. Exactly. That's that's a, that's a great uh, benefit as well. Yeah, yeah. But that uh, the mechanics don't explain um, uh, proactive human consciousness or uh, uh, free will. Oh, exactly. I mean, it, it's like you know, I could I could take I could take my car to a, a mechanic who's very familiar with these these parts are laid out in this order, but that doesn't mean that he understands thermodynamics. Right? right. That doesn't right. mean that he knows, you know. So, so asking a brain scientist about, you know, what what consciousness is, is kind of like asking an auto mechanic about, you know, why you can only extract so much energy from your gasoline. He's, he, mm. I mean, he could have made a separate study of that, but he's not going to know just just in order to be competent at his job. Right. I think I, the identical thing is true. When you're talking about you know brain science and, and thinking about consciousness, yeah, it's ah. an invitation to consider the question that many people turn down. <laughs> yep, mm -hmm. it's a big area that they want to uh, save for some other time. Well, I think uh, I think this is about uh, we, we've uh, sort of used up we've chewed up our buffer in terms of our, oh. our recording. <laughs> well. It's, uh, I, I like the way we've uh, gone into now some of these uh, higher uh, level um, uh, activities and abilities of the human mind, and uh, that's uh, grist for the mill of uh, further discussions about the uh, spiritual aspects that I'm sure we'll get into. Uh, so uh, I thank you for taking us further into, the, into that journey of the journey through the mind. Paul, thank mm -hmm. you. Yes, and so yeah, and, and we're going to we're going to continue going back and forth. We'll we'll return to having some interviews uh, next week. We're going to interview uh, Locke Genka, who is actually a uh, an engineer who's written some interest some fascinating things about um, the structure of, in particular, atoms and the sort of providential <laughs> arrangement of uh, the physical universe the way that it is. But we will be we'll be interweaving those episodes um, with more episodes about the. Uh, about humanity, and of course, many of the interviews we're going to be take, undertaking later in the season will will impact that uh, trajectory directly. So, in any case, we're really glad to have you along for this journey. Yes, no, it's wonderful. Our podcast is all about connections and seeing the connections and making even more. So, I appreciate that. 